right, and we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, and we are exploring faith, pursuing grace. And joining us tonight, we have a special guest. His name is Chris Rosser, and he serves as the theological librarian at Oklahoma Christian University, where he's worked since 2009. Chris has completed a Master of Divinity and Master of Library and Informational Studies degrees and courses. And for the Graduate School of Theology at Oklahoma Christian, he teaches Introduction to Biblical and Theological Research and the Bible and Classical Literature. Chris works extensively with students on research projects and aids them through that process, which is not an easy process to go through. Chris also teaches a course on media literacy, which is going to be our topic tonight. He also teaches a section of Acts and Life in the Early Church, and during the summer, he teaches a fantasy literature course for OC's Honor Summer Academy, and if that's available online, I might have to join that because I like fantasy literature. Formerly, Chris was an adjunct for the University of Phoenix and taught world religions in a course on critical and creative thinking, and his special interest is in gamified design and teaching both online and hybrid courses. Um, another point of interest that you shared, Chris, when we were corresponding via email is that you and your family lived in Japan for six and a half years where you and your wife, Heather worked as English teachers and then as full-time missionaries with a local congregation. And you, you had mentioned that those experiences in Japan were formative and reflected in a lot of your teaching, especially your teaching about media literacy. So with that introduction, Chris, thank you so much, brother, for, for agreeing to come on our show, man. We appreciate it. Hey guys, I'm really happy to be here. So thank you so much for the invitation. Yes, we are really happy to have you on. And one of the things Kevin and I will do whenever we visit, when we talk, we'll talk on the phone together. We'll text each other a lot until this week when my phone decided it wanted to start <laughs> farting and fizzling out on me. I've been trying to text back to Kevin. He's texted me like four or five times and I'm afraid he, he thinks I don't like him anymore because I've tried to reply, but those messages haven't gone out. So it's time for Lee to get a new phone. But anyway, one of the things we talk about um, I'm used to being ghosted. It's all good. No, yeah. Well, I mean, you live the life you've led, brother. I mean, what else can you expect? And, I mean, and really. I'm in sales, so I, I get ignored all the time. <laughs> well, I'm glad you've got thick skin for it. But one of the things that we're always brainstorming is what kind of topics we want to discuss. And whenever Kevin mentioned you, Chris, and he mentioned the course in media literacy that you teach, I, I thought to myself, man, that would be great. I mean, I consider myself fairly adept and fairly literate when it comes to being read, to being able to parse information and, and know what's going on and get a better grasp of what's going on in the world. But there's so much data to parse anymore. It, it gets really difficult. And I even find myself sometimes, you know, buying into things that, that may not be true or buying into half truths that may be out there because it's so hard to parse everything and it's so hard to fact check everything. And then there's the, you know, it, it, there's the question who fact checks the fact checkers who watches the <laughs> right. watchman you might say and it just it gets crazy and i know in this day and age there are a lot of people who it, it's hard to know what's real it's hard to know how to parse that data so being willing to come on and discuss what it means to be media literate especially through the lens of a christian worldview i think that's huge and i think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode so thank you so much yeah no worries yeah. Right. happy to be here so yeah, I'm so excited to have you on. I told Lee, I said, we've got to get Chris on. You have been teaching this class, Eat, Eat, Pray, and Love Media Literacy now for, I think you're on week nine or 10, I believe, uh, at church, at Dayspring Church of Christ. They brought you in to teach this class on Sunday mornings, and it has just been phenomenal. It, Bethany and I both, we've talked about how much we've enjoyed it and just learned so much from it, and we've been really able to not just take away lessons from it, but we've been able to 
reflect on each class and realize where we have so many weaknesses and we've kind of fallen prey to media without even realizing it. It's, it's almost embedded in us because it's what we've grown up in. And it's something that oftentimes is so subconscious. We don't even realize what you're doing. And so this is such a phenomenal topic. We were joking earlier with Chris before we started recording. And I told him that we usually go anywhere from about an hour to two and a half to three hours. But this class, uh, I think it's about 13 or 14 weeks. At least he's teaching a day spring with an hour each. So I told him if we need to go a day or two, <laughs> hey, we're good with that. We're good with that. But uh, for, for those who may not be aware, first and foremost, let, let's break this down and define it for us, if you will. What is media literacy? What exactly are we talking about here? Yeah, that's very good. So uh, media, media literacy really refers to, um, uh, Lee, as you were saying, it's uh, skills for learning how to navigate this uh, media-saturated an information-rich uh, system or information society that we inhabit. Uh, specifically, me media literacy is the ability to access, to analyze, to evaluate, to create, and to act using all forms of communication. So, you know, kind of a bland definition. Um, what I'm really interested in um, talking about and thinking about is something that I'm wanting to call media discernment. And media discernment is different uh, from media literacy. Media literacy is incorporated into media discernment. Uh, but media discernment, as I'm describing it, um, is this. As players, okay, so <laughs> there are actually a lot of terms that, that we might have to unpack in this as we go, but let me just lay out the definition at first, okay? As players who live, move, and have our being, in a media-rich and info-saturated system, media discernment refers to a disposition of heart and the requisite skills for critically attending to self and to other in love so that our information consumption nourishes well-being. That is a thick definition. It's a little it bit is. thicker than the other one. All right, Lee, go ahead and repeat that back real quick. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I don't know if I can, but if I were to summarize it, I would say it's being able to parse data in a way that honors God and demonstrates love for neighbor. That I mean, is that's, excellent. I mean, that's how I would rehash it. I mean, I understand the meaning, but giving that back to you word for word, it ain't happening, brother. <laughs> no, Lee, you need to be teaching the class because what you've done is you've just taken something very complex and you've put it into simple terms that are easily digestible. And really, that's an important part of, of what it means to be an information literate person. You're able to take the media or the information that you're receiving, and then you're able to um, discern it, to chew on it, to comprehend it in such a way that you can tell us what was just said. And so, bravo. I, I may steal that if you don't trademark it, because that was a good I one. So. Please feel free. <laughs> That's very kind. I'm I'm honored and humbled in both both of those things at the same time. Well, I'll tell you, and um, and guys, feel free to stop me, ask any questions or, or whatever as we kind of go. But um, if you'd like, I'll tell you kind of what led to this. Um, you know, wondering about media literacy and media discernment, especially yes, in kind of today's. You know. So last January, um, I got asked to uh, join uh, really what turned out to be uh, about 50 different individuals, primarily who were missionaries stationed in Europe, uh, somewhere in Canada. There were a couple in the United States. 
it was really kind of a global experience, but uh, they were going to have this event and they were going to talk about uh, changes in the way that we do church because of the pandemic, right? So church is one of those things that has, has fundamentally changed. You know, uh, we're using Zoom. We're trying to have virtual experiences for people. We're trying to help people connect. And so much of that is being mediated digitally. And so um, they were going to have this event. And at first I was told, you're going to be one of the panelists uh, in these discussions. We want you to come in and, and just kind of join this panel of discussions, you know, about this. So uh, on the day of, I showed up. And, uh, you know, got logged into Zoom and the facilitator said, well, our presenter today is Chris Rosser. And Chris, do you have any slides for us? And so it turned out uh, this was an ambush. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but there was no panel. I was supposed to talk for the next you two hours. You were the panel. I, I, it turned out I was the panel. And Did you have some slides? I had no slides <laughs> at all. Oh, uh, man. But I had to think really fast. And um, so they said, do you have your, your topic for us today? And so um, really, what was so interesting about this is that this happened around January 10th. January 6th, we all know what had happened at the nation's capital. We watched it on TV. We saw the way that the capital was... Um, was really essentially taken over. And it was something that none of us had ever seen before. And so on January 10th, I was still reeling from all of that. And then to come on uh, and, and to be asked what I thought was just to talk about, you know, the, the next kind of iterations of church in the digital world, I found out you're the presenter. And so um, I, I really just kind of, um, you know, said, okay, here's what we're gonna talk about today. Let's see if we can chew on this. Here's my thesis. And I said, it's become increasingly and unarguably clear that media literacy is a necessary discipline for spiritual formation. Let's talk about why and what we can do about it. And we chewed on it for the next two hours and people were hungry, I found out, to, to kind of have this kind of a conversation because really what we've seen is a fundamental change in the way that uh, people are interacting with each other. Yes. In the digital environment. Um, you know, historically, when I say the word codex, I'm talking about books. Uh, but when the codex replaced the scroll about 2000 years ago as the primary information delivery device, peculiar modes of spirituality, which at that time were new, means for spiritually forming and, and shaping adherence. Things like Lectio Divina, I'm sure you guys are, are probably familiar with some of these, these modes. These new modes of spirituality emerged in response to a new technology, which was at that time the book. We don't think about the book as a new mode of technology, but yeah. sure enough, it was. And so today, information delivery is actually once again uh, primary, primarily mediated by the scroll, except that now we scroll glowing screens for illumination. Yeah. And it's really in this new um, information ecosystem where misinformation and disinformation are, are so rampant that uh, media literacy, I think, has emerged 
as something that is going to have to be fundamental to Christian spiritual formation as a kind of discipline. I agree 100%. And and just my uneducated musings on this, it, it seems as though, from what I understand of, of the ancient times and in ancient Greece and even as far back as the Egyptians, in order to put something to stone or put something to paper, hmm. whether it was papyrus or, or a scroll or whatever else, it took a lot of resources and it took a lot of learning. Yeah. And so if something was written down a lot of times that, you know, when writing was still new technology, you might yeah. say it was something that required a, a good degree of education and it required resources in order to make it happen. And you end up lowering the bar for access to those things as time goes on. And now it's at the point where, you know, we carry all of the information that exists within the world in our pocket. Essentially, yeah. we have access to information upon information and anybody can put anything out there that they want. Yeah. And parsing that, it, it's difficult. And, and I think you're spot on on this being something that Christians need to have in mind for their spiritual maturity, for their spiritual formation, because there's so much out there that can get your attention and and could possibly begin to lead you down a rabbit hole that you know that, that may be based or predicated upon bad information or yeah. un, or information that ignores context. And what what is so I think disheartening about the, the this whole situation right now where we're seeing people get caught up in so many false dichotomies and polarization and, and on all sides, it happens everywhere. Right. And, and it's, it's the idea that most people who are involving themselves in media illiteracy, should we say, uh, they don't even realize it. it it's, these are good people with good hearts. They think they're doing the right thing. They they think they have the correct information. And I think that's really where the rubber meets the road because people want to know, well, how do we even know anymore what is valid information and what is invalid information? Because you have your sources. I have my sources. You can you can quote from an article. I can quote from an article. And there just seems to be, instead of a lot of information engagement, there seems to be a lot of information swapping hmm. and it, it's, it's people really aren't engaging as much in the content or at least with each other. It's more, well, here's what I believe. Here's some articles, go read it. And the person says, okay, well you're wrong. And here's some articles of what I believe you need to read that. And hmm. instead of people having real conversations, it's almost as if we're, we're, we're hiding behind just this cesspool of, of information where we're able to just throw all sorts of information at each other, but we're really not truly engaging with the information as much either. That's, I think that's a, a really important um, characterization. It's an accurate characterization of uh, the moment that we inhabit right now. And um, to be honest, Christians, not least, are participants in all of the things that you're describing. Um, Lee, if you don't mind, can I can I comment on what you were you were talking about just a moment ago? Because, yeah, please, um, please. I, I think it's so interesting uh, what you bring up. How the creation of information historically has been something that was resource intensive. Like you had to have a lot of resources to create. Uh, you know. You had to be able to write. All of the ideas of literacy kind of come into this as well. And uh, the piece on this that I want to that I want to focus on is that um, 
up until not too long ago, the way that human knowledge was created and captured and then communicated was primarily through uh, what we call the encyclopedia. And yeah. so the encyclopedia represents, um, you know, for centuries, it has represented uh, the way that we communicate human knowledge. And it typically uh, is knowledge that comes from an expert. And so that that expert has the knowledge and the knowledge from the expert trickles out of their brain and into their hand with a, a quill or a typewriter or a computer or whatever it is. And they generate knowledge about a particular topic. And then that knowledge is captured and it's printed and it's bound. It takes a lot of work. You would have to have a lot of like whiteout, right? If you wanted to change that knowledge, <laughs> and you'd have yeah. to have a lot of desire to go and find all the copies, you know, of these encyclopedias. But now what's happened is that the way that human knowledge is created has fundamentally shifted. It's still being created by experts, but in the information society that we inhabit, uh, the encyclopedia has a cousin called Wikipedia, and Wikipedia <laughs> is a phenomenal tool. It could only exist in an information um, system or society like we uh, live in, but Wikipedia represents the flattening of the expert voice. So Wikipedia is what we call not expert-generated knowledge, but collaboratively generated knowledge, where a community of users, potentially global in scope, are all able to argue kind of behind the scenes and create knowledge that the rest of us consume. But the expert voice in that has been flattened in such a way. And that's interesting because it also reflects the way that, as you were talking about, information itself is being created and disseminated everywhere right now. There's a democratization. That's a hard word to say. Let me try it again. Yeah, There's yes, a democratization is. of information that's been happening because all of us now, most of us, uh, we have to pay attention to something called digital divide, of course. Uh, but most of us are able to just create information and disseminate it uh, very, very rapidly. 280 characters, a TikTok, you know, uh, an Insta story, whatever it is. You're able to create information and everybody is able to do that uh, without a lot of um, consideration for the expert voice. Mm. And that's a, that's a different way of engaging information, right? Yeah. I'll pause there. What do you, what do you guys want to say about that? No, I, I think that that's a really interesting perspective. And I think that that's something that a lot of people may have a natural they may have a subconscious knowledge that that is the case, but whenever you put it that way, it's just, it's, it really is wild. It, whenever you look at, cause we still have, my mom still has a set of encyclopedias. Like yeah. I remember whenever I was a kid, I would pull out the encyclopedias just at random and look at random articles. Cause being yeah. homeschooled, I had a lot of time. So, you know, there were things that I would read and different entries that I'd have an interest in. You know, I wonder about the Tasmanian tiger. When did it go extinct? Well, let's nice. look at T and see what that says, you know, things <laughs> like that. And now you can Google Tasmanian tiger online and yeah, you can yeah. see a Wikipedia article and you can check it out. And one of the benefits of Wikipedia is, is that you do have sources that are cited in the footnotes yeah. and you know, that that's a good thing. But like you said, talking about flattening the, the expert voice, mm -hmm. that's really interesting because 
are there experts that contribute to the informational conversation we have? Of course there are, but those voices oftentimes get drowned out by the cacophony of the uninformed who are lending their voice to the conversation sometimes as if they are experts when they're not. Yeah. And, and I raise my hand guilty as charged. I mean, I've done that too. I think we've all done that. I mean, look at what this podcast is. I mean, it's kind of an exercise in that until we bring actual experts on, but uh, yeah, Kevin and I, we're, we're experts in, in some things, but, but yeah, not a lot. We're experts at not being experts and it's, we're very, we're, very, we're very, very good at it too. But now I, I think that's a really, really interesting point. And whenever you have so much information that expert voice gets diluted and that perspective tends to get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. I, I had never, I love the way you put it. I've never thought of it as really flattening that expert voice because I, I don't think that's what people realize. I don't think that's what they realize that they're doing, but when they are you know, reposting or they're posting something or they saw something that they liked. And oftentimes there's all these echo chambers anyway, that people are, People are talking in a vacuum, and Lee and I both have been guilty of that in times past, and that's why we try to have different voices on our program, because we want to make sure that we are never falling prey to that uh, just echo chamber that is only ser- that only serves to be self-validating instead of seeking out information so that we can truly learn and grow and be honest instead of just telling us what we want to hear, what we already believe. And so I was going to ask you, for those who are listening to this, if if you're cool with it, we'll just kind of continue this conversation because I I was wondering, first and foremost, what would what would be the the warning before people even start to get on social media or before people start to really jump into media as a whole, not just social media, but even Googling something? What would you say needs to be the preparation? How should we prepare our minds before we even get into the information? What are some things I need to tell myself or remind myself? What are some gauges or what are some checks and balances or boundaries or guardrails, whatever you want to call it, that I could go ahead and put in place before I even start down the trail of of looking into information or doing research? That's a great question. Um, and some of it, uh, maybe not ironically, but it has to do with uh, becoming informed or really understanding uh, more what is the nature of this system that we are about to interact with. You know, I, I think it's so cool. Um, Lee, you're talking about the, you know, I'm, I'm guessing it was a Britannica uh, set of encyclopedias. Do you remember? I believe so. I think so. It's been, man, it's been World years book, since I've seen possibly, them. Been, or... It may have been World Book. It, it's been, yeah. oh, it's been over 20 years since I've even looked at them. <laughs> my, my granddad was a door-to-door salesman of World Book encyclopedias Are you years serious? and years and years ago. Yep. He would, he had them in his trunk and this was well before I was born, but yeah, he would, he would go door-to-door and try to sell those things. Yeah. Well, I'm older than you guys. So when you say it was 20 years ago, that's like only 20 years. Wow. That's not too bad. The, <laughs> the reality is I remember the door-to-door salesman coming to the house and mom opening up the door and we're all having a conversation yeah, with the world yeah. book salesman. You know? well, with my granddad now, we're talking probably, goodness, 50 years plus, that's, you know, when he was doing this. Yeah. 40, I, 50 years, 30, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. I'm somewhere in between, guys, okay? I'm not going to tell you exactly, but I'm in between there somewhere, okay? Fair so, enough, baby. Um, fair enough, fair enough. 
but here's the thing uh, with WorldBook, and one of the things that they would they would be able to the selling point, right? They would be able to say that listen, the information in here is reliable, right? Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I pulled that book off the shelf and it said WorldBook on it, that was trustworthy information. In other yeah. words, there wasn't a lot that I had to do to try to evaluate mm-hmm. the reliability or the accuracy or the authority of this information. You didn't have to question, is this peer reviewed? Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. And we live in a a space now where you mentioned just a moment ago that um, I might Google Tasmanian devil and, um, you know, or Tasmanian tiger. I think you were talking about. I could Google that and a Wikipedia page would come up. Tasmanian devil there. That's a different guy. guy. (laughs) That's what I would be uh, Googling. (laughs) That's, That's right. I'm not even going to try to do the voice, so. but but it's it's interesting because now um, that kind of information is literally a Google away, right? Uh, but we live in a different, and we're engaging a different kind of system where the 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 kind of thinking and the skills that are needed to evaluate what we encounter, um, it's really just been enhanced. It's really just been heightened. Uh, can I say something just really quickly, uh, just in case any listeners, you probably know this, but just how Google works. Yeah, know? go for it, bro. Yeah, please. So yeah. when you Google something, is it's really fascinating, actually, how this works. When you Google something, uh, Google's powerful, powerful, powerful algorithms, I mean, they truly are profound, uh, but they are able to look at language that's associated with information that's out there. So for example... Um, I'm seeing you guys right now digitally. We're talking to each other mediated digitally, but I know that on the other end of this thing, there are human beings, right? On the yeah. other, And we humans, we engage the world conceptually, symbolically. And that's, um, you know, kind of evidence in the way that we talk about things, you know? For example, when you started making the sound of, of the Tasmanian devil... <laughs> I knew what you were doing. It's right? a really poor attempt too. Yeah, yeah. Like, but it, but you you got you got it across. I knew what you were doing. You know who doesn't know that? Googster. Googster, the Google mind doesn't know that because the machine mind thinks differently than the human mind. It doesn't engage the world um, conceptually or symbolically like we do. It ga- it engages the world through strings of characters. Mm, very one dimensional. And so. Yeah. Now it is profound. And um, as soon as Google becomes sentient, you know, then uh, we we will have problems, I'm guessing. But until (laughs) that time, um, it's very fascinating the way that Google works. So it's taking these strings of characters that you type in and it's going and it's looking at language that's associated with information out there so that it can find matches. And it's doing this almost instantaneously and it's bringing back sometimes millions of results. But the results are ranked in a particular way. And again, it does this almost instantaneously. It's it's incredible. It's almost mind-boggling to, to think about how this can happen. The way that it ranks those results, though, are uh, based um, on what we call relevance. Okay. So um, how many matches, you know, did the string of characters that you typed in, did it match? What's the level of relevance here? Uh, it's also uh, basing it on popularity. It's why Wikipedia comes up at the top of the results almost every time, depending on what you Google. 
or IMDb, if you were to Google a movie title, boom, that's very popular. It's going to come right up. But it also, and I don't want to scare you or any of the listeners out there, even though you probably already know this very, very well, because you see the way that ads are targeted to you, etc. Google is paying attention to the way that you search and where you like to get information. And so if you tend to go to a particular kind of source for information, when you Google something, Google is going to show you what it thinks that you want to see. In other words, oh, it's app. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So the algorithm is actually designed so that it will begin to show you things that are similar to the kind of information resources that you go to. And this creates for the user uh, really a very nice experience. I'm Googling <laughs> and the things that I already think are kind of being mirrored back to me. And do you see how that, that works? It's very, very interesting. Well, um, it's a, extremely interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that, that in and of itself is a type of self-validation with it's unintentional. Yeah. It's you're not even doing it. It's being done for you. Yeah. And when you, when you think about that, it makes a lot more sense when if you're studying a topic and you have been going to certain websites, as you pointed out, and you start to see that every website you're clicking on or that keeps popping up is saying this virtually the same thing or it's in agreement with your conclusion. You're thinking, wow, yeah, I must be right because everything that I'm Google searching, it keeps popping up the exact same thing that I've already thought for all these years. So yeah. I, I'm pretty smart. I agree with Google. <laughs> Google agrees with me. There Google you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, it, that's it, fascinating. I, I think most people would know that. But to think about it for more than 10 seconds is kind of a frightening yeah. thought. Well, we know that advertisements are um, targeted to us and they're based upon our search histories. But it's really when you get into this um, area of what we would think to be um, the kind of information that is completely benign. I'm looking for the Tasmanian tiger, completely benign, right? But it's possible that you and I, if we Google the same string of characters, Tasmanian tiger, we might get different results. And, mm -hmm. and that's actually really interesting. And so um, a lot of social media platforms, they, they have different algorithms, of course, uh, but, but they work in the same way to where the goal is actually to kind of show you um, something that already is similar to who you are, tailored for you, and that is a way of kind of um, making you feel comfortable, frankly, drawing you into and creating these kind of little spheres of, of information. And that sphere, I guess you could call it an echo chamber, right? Where we're, we're essentially only hearing the things that we ourselves are speaking out into the universe. And it's being sp spoken back to us in such a way that it becomes very comforting and it becomes affirming. And it's a kind of confirmation bias, you know, these, mm -hmm. these spheres that are being created like that. So you asked a moment ago, what are some things that we need to know, guardrails, um, before we sit down to Google? And I think understanding the nature of the system that we are uh, about to interact with and how it works, those are really important skills. And... Um, it's really interesting and a bit ironic, the irony is not lost on me, that just a Google away, 
are tons of videos that help explain how Google works <laughs> or <laughs> that help explain uh, how, you know, these these echo chambers are created. Yeah. They're just a Google away, friends. It's it's not too bad. So it's kind of ironic, but but there it is. Well, it's, it's terribly ironic. And in a lot of ways, it's terrifying, but it also pro provides a degree of clarity because I mean, I didn't know that it worked that way in terms of the information you were looking for. I mean, I know that Google's going to put ads in front of you based on what you search for, because I mean, I use that strategy as part of my marketing for my business. So, you know, getting out there using AdWords and a platform very similar to AdWords to get my ads in front of the type of people that look for the type of service I offer, et cetera. I mean, it's a strategy you use to build your business, but in terms of, of information and the, more or less subconscious creation of a digital echo chamber. That's scary because yeah. as human beings, we like being validated. No yeah. one likes being told they're wrong. No one likes being called out on the carpet. Nobody likes being challenged or having their worldview challenged. We all just like to stay nice and tidy and neat and comfortable in our, in our own um, social and, and, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Intellectual environment. I mean, yeah. the emperor can have no clothes, but we don't care. We just, <laughs> we're, we're, we're just fine being where we are. And then you have Google and Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that are helping feed that beast because yeah. instead of, you know, because no one's going to use something if they're not seeing what they want to see, it makes perfect sense that they would do that. But the ramifications of that, they they have some far reaching effects. And I think that, you know, as a result, part of the erosion we're seeing in the public discourse in society and being able to have conversations, it's, it's something that has has definitely been negatively affected. Um, do you think with your expertise in communications that all of that has played a role in that or am I, or am I reading too much into that? Oh no, I think you're, I think you're very much right. And, um, so if we could, you know, I mean, if it's okay with you to move it away from, um, kind of the technical side and, and think about kind of the theological, um, yeah. side of this, then, um, you know, a lot of us approach, uh, whether we realize it or not, we approach our computers as a kind of little altar of omniscience. This is the <laughs> yes. all knowing machine. <laughs> And knowledge is being mediated to us from somewhere up in the cloud, right? It's very mm -hmm. interesting how once you start talking about it this way, it becomes very religious uh, adjacent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it almost yeah. feels like religious language or theological language. And so um, what's happening when you create these kind of or, or you live within these little um, echo chambers, right? It's almost like as you approach this altar of omniscience, uh, its screen becomes a kind of reflecting pool. It becomes a kind of mirror. And one of the things that we've been talking about in that class, and if you don't mind, you've heard this already, Kevin, but if you don't mind me saying it, um, I, I'm really um, challenged by Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody's familiar with those, or most people are familiar with those. The, the, the part that we're familiar with is love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it, it is not proud or rude. We know all of that, but the most interesting aspect of 1 Corinthians 13 is actually coming toward the end of what Paul is saying. When he starts talking about how when I was a child, I thought like a child, I spoke like a child, 
I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put childish ways behind me. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully. But he says something here that is really interesting and kind of weird, frankly. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. What in the world are you talking about? (laughs) The context here is love that is trying to become mature. Love that is moving from a kind of childish love and orientation to love that is now in encountering the world as, a, as an adult, essentially. So what does he mean here by this, this dim mirror metaphor? When you look into a dim mirror, a tarnished mirror, and frankly, my iPhone is itself a dim mirror. I often will try to like fix my beard or make sure, you know, I don't have any <laughs> anything in my beard. I don't have any hair left to fix. So it's not that. Yeah, me either. You know, you know, it's okay. We're okay. We're okay. That's right. But, <laughs> but my, my phone is itself a kind of dim mirror. And when I look into it, what I see reflected, even if I don't immediately realize it, what I see reflected is myself. In other words, the dim mirror is reflecting to us sameness. And I love it. It's very comfortable for me to see self and to encounter self and to encounter sameness. And I have learned how to love sameness. I've learned how to love my tribe, my posse. I've learned how to love those who agree with me. I can love sameness, no problem. Just like the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, I can be patient and kind. (laughs) I don't have to boast. You know what I mean? But here's what he's saying. He's saying, Love that has become mature is a love that takes away the dim mirror so that we actually will come face to face with that who is different from us, with the one who is different from us, face to face with difference, no longer sameness. And in doing so, we have to learn how to love the other or that which is different from us, just like we have learned to love self and sameness. This is the problem for us as we, as we kind of inhabit this info-saturated world. We are, by, very de- by its very design, we are inhabiting sameness, right? When I Google something, sameness is being reflected back to me. And if I don't learn how to push past the dim mirror so that I might truly encounter that which is different and learn to love that which is different, my love is always ever going to stay immature. It's, it doesn't, I'm diminishing my capacity to learn how to be a lover of the other if I cannot learn to get past sameness. And that's the problem that we inhabit. That's the problem that we have in this information system that we inhabit. I, does that make sense? I, I'm, I'm hoping oh, yeah. not. That makes perfect sense. And it, a while back at, at the church that we're at now, um, one of the elders, he does a series through the summer on, um, you know, courageous Christians in a crazy world is what he calls it. And it, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good series. And nice. he was out of town for the last one, asked me to cover it for him. And I said, well, what do you, you know, what do you want to talk about? What do you usually talk about for the last session? And he said, man, just talk about whatever you want to talk about. I don't care. <laughs> oh, okay. That's always so fun. I, so I talked about forgiveness and in talking about forgiveness, I led off and I said, and I want to be sure that I'm, I want everyone to understand what I'm saying here. And I want to be perfectly clear from the outset. I'm not being political. 
I said, but there is a word, there is a one five letter word and it's not COVID, but there is a five letter word that is one of the most divisive words in recent memory. And I wrote it on the board and I wrote T-R-U-M-P. I said, Mm. there are some people who think that Trump is God's gift to this country, that President Trump was the best president that we have ever had. And that if you didn't vote for him, you're an anti-American communist and you're awful and you're one of the most horrible people ever. There are people who believe he is the worst president, the most divisive character that our country has ever seen. And anyone that voted for him is secretly a servant of Satan in disguise. And the problem is, is if you go on social media, whichever opinion you hold, you're going to see more of that. And there are people who, and and this is the point I made, and this is how it ties into what you're saying, is that there are people who are friends of mine, who I love dearly, that said, if you voted for Donald Trump, you can just unfriend me right now. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want to have I don't have anything to say to you. There's no conversation we could ever have. And there are other people that have said, if you voted for Joe Biden in this election, you sealed the doom of this great country. And I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't, I don't care about anything you have to say. And I'm sitting here wondering how in the world does that further our discourse with one another? Mm. How does that express that love that Paul talked about, especially when these people on both sides of the equation are Christians. Mm. These are people that, that are supposed to be serving God. I'm like the people that you're saying you don't ever want to talk to again are people you're probably going to see in heaven. And how is, how is that an expression or an extension of love? And understanding that the beast that we feed uh, speaking of social media and the digital currency that we all deal in today, that it's going to feed back to us what we want to see anyway. Mm. You're right. It is a huge impediment that gets in the way of developing that mature love that Paul calls us all to develop. And in that light, I, I think that's probably the strongest case that we can make that media literacy is something that as Christians, we need to pursue. So with that in mind, what do we need to do in our pursuit of that, Chris? Like, like where do we start in that? Well, goodness, I, I appreciate you talking about that. And I think that sounds like it was a really good class. I wish I could have, could have sat in on that one. <laughs> you know, there were some um, folks that got a little upset, but that's okay. I was, was going to say, did, you probably ended up making everybody mad. That's <laughs> what ended up happening. <laughs> um, no, it was, it was great. I got a lot of compliments, but it, it was, it was funny. I had one fella who, who did take issue with it. And I told him, I was like, man, I am so sorry. I said, I, I really thought that I had, clearly made the point that, that I was trying to make, but, yeah. but I obviously didn't. I said, so I'm, I'm very sorry for the confusion and well, that diffuse it. And it was good. I mean, it was all good, but well, I, I don't the, know if I call it great, but it was, it was passable. It was adequate. Well, and that's <laughs> something that before we started to record, I think you had left the room for a minute, Lee, but Chris and I were just talking about one of the things we try to aim for on this program is to abstain from any type of polarization but in trying to uh, not polarize, sometimes you, you still end up polarizing without meaning to simply because of the conversation that you're, you're talking about, uh, because yeah. of the content. And you, you, you can still draw. There's there's times when lines are drawn, but you don't have to be antagonistic doing it. And you, you still have to cover the content and you have to do so in an intellectually honest way. And And I feel like especially social media, which I'm not on social media. This is kind of a running joke, but I'm not on social media. I can't handle it. 
uh, myself. And so uh, my business is on there and that's it. And that's simply so that we can get reviews and, and post uh, sales and deals and things like that. But as far as personal and getting involved in in conversation or anything of that nature, I, I just don't do it anymore. And I don't fault those who do, but I personally just don't have the the patience for it, which is really more of a reflection on me than it is anything else. But I got to thinking about you talking about not just Google, because that is something that oftentimes is unintentional. Because you said that you might be looking at, uh, you might type in a subject and Lee might type in a subject and I might type in a subject, but we are all actually getting different websites. We're all getting different content and it may be saying different things. And so we're all thinking that we're looking at the same information and we're not even looking at the same information, much less coming to the same conclusions. And so when you, when you come to Facebook and other mediums, when it talks, just social media where you can share information as well, as Lee pointed out, those are very intentional self-created vacuums oftentimes where you're able to pick your friends. You can block who you don't. I don't want to see that anymore. So I'm going to block it. Oh, I don't want to hear that anymore. So I'm going to block it. And sometimes you might really need to do that. It may be a matter of, of toxicity, but a lot of times it's just, Oh, I don't like that. That's that makes me feel uncomfortable because it goes against what I believe or I don't, I don't agree with that. So I don't want to even see it or hear it. Um, so like, like Lee was saying, I mean, when you take all that into consideration, when it comes to searching on Google, when it comes to interacting on social media, but even when it just comes to comes down to researching, yeah. even when you're not putting yourselves in groups of people who agree with you, but you're simply just trying to be an honest researcher. Yeah. And, uh, you know, aside from having to just say, hey, screw the Internet, I'm just going to start buying books written by people who are experts and, and go that route, which is kind of almost what I've decided to do these days. It's like, I'm not going to believe anything I read on the Internet. I'm going to actually buy a book and read it by the by the person. But you know, what, I mean, that's not realistic, obviously, and it's not beneficial because we do have all of this information. So mm. what what are just some some steps? I know we're not going to be able to conquer the world tonight, but what are some very practical steps for those, because Lee and I both like to think that, you know, our audience is, is are, they're, they're pretty honest people, we hope. Um, we like to think we're pretty honest people as well. And so for those who are saying, hey, I just want to, I really do just want to know the truth. I want to be honest. I'm trying to make sure I'm looking at different angles and different sides and different perspectives. How can one do that and not just attempt to do that, but kind of know that that's what they're doing, that that's what they're actually getting? This is really good. You guys want the practical and I love the theological and the theoretical. And so, but I'm going to do my best. Okay. I'm not going to skimp on you here. You know, um, you can give it to us all, man. We got all night. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, you know, going back to, um, don't just give us what we want to hear. There you go. (laughs) Nice. We we don't want to see ourselves in you. Okay. (laughs) That's meta. That That was nice. So, you know, going back to, um, for example, the, the encyclopedia, um, there was a time when there was a standard um, that everyone kind of understood to be the standard for human knowledge, right? In other words, there was a source that we would all kind of turn to for kind of the definitive word at the end of the day. But as you mentioned, um, now, Uh, There's so much out there and we're all seeing often um, very different things. And the reality is the experts who are writing books 
are also the ones who are jumping in and joining you guys on podcasts, you know, or they're the ones who have a blog or they're the ones. In other words, the expert voice is not, um, you know, gone or vanished from the Internet. Uh, there is just so much out there. And so when I first started in um, librarianship, which was definitely not the career that I thought I was going to be in. But when I started in librarianship, um, we were told you're going to be the metaphors that were used were like you're you're a gatekeeper. You're going to be a guide, you know, this kind of thing. And it wasn't very long before I started realizing that um, what we have to be, whether you're a librarian or not, we have to become curators of information. We have to be those who are able to um, navigate this digital world and evaluate the information that we find so that we can know uh, whether or not this is an authoritative voice. We also have to be willing not to simply um, assume that one voice uh, has all the answers, but rather we should be able to put um, these various voices into a kind of dialogue. And it's within the dialogue that hopefully a clearer understanding of truth might come out. It takes more time to work and to think and to act dialogically. Uh, you know, I can't just listen to a voice and say, ah, here's the answer. But being able to, so here's an example of that and uh, for, for what it's worth. If I'm asked to um, teach a class or do something that has to do with uh, a biblical text, for example, my habit now is to go and to find that expert voice commentary, right? A commentary series that I can trust and that's authoritative, it's reliable, and I'll use that commentary to help me kind of understand this text. But then I'll go into, um, you know, for example, the library databases or, or places where we could find um, that scholarly conversation happening. And I will intentionally look for something about that passage that I'm supposed to teach on that is totally different from anything I would have thought about it, right? I want to hear a voice that is coming at this from a very, very different perspective. And then it's me and the commentary, the expert voice, and another expert voice that's coming at it from a very different angle. And the Holy Spirit, hopefully, uh, we're all going to engage in a kind of dialogue and we're going to puzzle this thing out together. And it's hopefully in the midst of that kind of conversation, uh, that's where we can come to some kind of understanding. So there's a lot of listening first, it sounds like. Yeah, that is a really, really important, um, important point. Not just for the way that we engage um, information, but, but for the way that we engage one another. Mm -hmm. And I'll... Here we go. Are you ready for the theoretical? Is that okay? Yes, yes, please, please. We love it. it. I mean, it has to do with the way that humans um, are. Human being. What is human being? And in a lot of ways, uh, we are storied creatures. In other words, we inhabit story. Uh, we intend the world through stories that we tell ourselves about the way the world is. And come to find out other people in other places, like in Japan, for example, in my case, come to find out they don't see the world in the same way that we do at all. We might say, well, deep down, they're just the same. No, actually, we see the world in some pretty fundamentally different ways. And so um, 
because we are storied beings, what that means is that um, we have to be willing to listen to other people's stories. Because a lot of these people that we think are our enemies, if we would take just a little bit of time, and I know this sounds, you know, like it's it's overly simplified, um, but if we would take a little bit of time just to ask, what's your story? How is it that you came to think that way about that topic? Rather than trying to convince them, you're wrong, or, you know, this is the way that I think about it. If we just ask the question, hey, listen, I, I can't even understand how you came to that way of thinking. Can you tell me what is your story? How did you get to where that's what you think? That you came to the point where you voted for that person, for example. <laughs> How'd you get there? You know, let's talk about this. Not for the sake, because I want to get you, right? But I want to get you. I want to understand mm. you. And that listening is such an important piece of this. And a lot of times the way that information is mediated to us uh, via our devices or computers it really excises or edits out the possibility of us really hearing another person's story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Insta stories are not really stories. Yeah. Because the human being is mediated to us as pixels, as image, as 280 characters, as a sound bite. But the person behind the pixels is really the face that we really want to get to. And, and it's difficult. It's difficult to navigate for sure. So It's incredibly difficult, especially in terms of so much of the news you see, the 24-hour news cycle and some of the interviews that exist. You have these incredibly complex topics being discussed. And I mean, and, and bona fide experts going on to discuss these sometimes and sometimes yeah. not so bona fide experts, but, you know, they're expected to break down a incredibly complex idea or topic you know, and give a three to five minute soundbite or yeah. just, you know, cover everything, you know, about particle physics, you have two minutes go, you know, it's, it, you know, it's akin to that. And that's one of the reasons why I really like the format we have on our podcast in, yeah. in, in the very beginning, you know, some of the feedback we had received was as well, your episodes are too long. They really need to be short. They need to be about 15, 20 minutes an episode. And I'm like, <laughs> some of this stuff we're talking about, there's no way you can condense that down to, 15 or 20 minutes like that's not gonna happen i mean our whole series we did on marriage divorce and remarriage was that was eight episodes and it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 hours of material wow, wow. and you just you can't really get there you can't listen well and even then even then we didn't cover everything we, we cover everything cover. it was far yeah. from exhaustive but you know we had to pick well all right we really need to lean on this and this may be superfluous we can get to this in another point but one of the things that I really appreciate what you say, Chris, is the idea of hearing someone and asking that question, how did you get to where you are now? Mm. Because I know in Kevin through his process and through the, and I, and I hate using this word, but it's the most appropriate one for it as he went through the deconstruction process of his faith that he once possessed and he reconstructing something better and more beautiful in its place. And the same thing goes for me that's a question that's an awfully short supply mm. because oftentimes the approach people take theologically is, is well, you're thinking wrongly now yeah. and you need to change how you're thinking. You need to think like you used to, you need to think that way because that's how I think too. And we can't have fellowship with one another unless we are perfectly joined in a uniform lockstep mm. on topic X, Y, or Z 
but there's very little. And I honestly don't know. I, th- I think I've been asked that question one time by someone with the previous fellowship that I was a part of. What led you to think this way? Yeah. You know, what was that process like? And that was a two and a half, three hour conversation we had. Yeah. It wasn't something that could be communicated in a soundbite. It wasn't, you know, something that could be covered in five minutes or less. And that idea of listening well and being able to ask that question, that's huge because it gives the person that you're talking to that may view the world in a different way, the Mm -hmm. opportunity to expound on that worldview. And it gives you the opportunity or me the opportunity, I should say, to learn something new that I didn't know before, which will then better inform my worldview. Mm. And it's, it's the best way forward. It, it, well, it's, it's a great way forward. And it's something that is sorely missing in our public discourse now. It's a, it's a humble way forward. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that um, outrage is not a fruit of the spirit. Mm. Vitriol yep. is not a fruit of the spirit. Um, there's a, there's a definition that has really stuck with me. It's not original to me. Uh, it's a definition for critical thinking that I, I really find compelling. And it goes like this. Critical thinking is the systematic monitoring of thought with the end goal of improvement. Let me say it one more time. Critical like thinking that. is the systematic monitoring of thought with the end goal of improvement. And so if I'm paying attention to my thinking and if my thinking is only producing vitriol and outrage, right? And I'm always ready for the next, um, you know, adrenaline rush of anger, you know, or something. And that's something to be really paying attention to in ourselves. Because that means that we have habituated ourselves to a particular way of being or way of consuming information. And that consumption ultimately becomes a consumption of the other, yeah. right? To where they become something to eat rather than to love. Mm. I'll tell you guys a story if you're okay. Is that? Is yeah, that oh, right? yeah. Okay, yeah, okay, okay, okay. So, anything look, goes here. But look, here's the right. thing. I, I worry. Is, we just finished our introduction, so now we're ready. There we go. <laughs> Only 14 hours to go. We're doing great. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm going to um, give you a caricature of my dad uh, because I, I'm not meaning to disrespect my father by telling you this story, but this is a so take the caricature for what it's worth. My dad loves politics, as probably many. <laughs> dads do. And he always wants to talk about it. And he and I are not at all uh, simpatico uh, in terms of political <laughs> thinking. He wants to talk about politics and has wanted to talk about politics with me uh, quite often. But I've had to tell him, listen, this is not good for our relationship because it only ever goes in a really bad direction. Well, my brother um, had a, a major health issue and he was in Canyon, Texas, which is, you know, quite a, a few hour drive from Oklahoma city. My dad was in Tulsa. Uh, he comes to Oklahoma city, shows up, picks me up and we're going to go out and, and visit my brother. And as soon as I got in the car, I heard the doors lock and then I could just feel it. I knew it was about to happen. I am a captive audience. And we are going to talk politics for the next several, several, several hours. And I held him off for at least two good hours. I'm, I'm <laughs> hey, 
but there came a point finally, that was it. And I mean, we just started having the worst kind of conversation. There's nothing generative about this type of conversation, right? It's a gotcha kind of conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there came a point where um, it was really interesting, but we started telling me about how someone in our family or an acquaintance or something had disagreed with a post that he had made on Facebook and they had just really disagreed and they had disagreed with him publicly. And he said, and I couldn't believe that they did that. And it just makes me so mad when someone disagrees with me like that. Mm-hmm. And then I said, have you ever thought about why? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why does it make you so mad when somebody disagrees with you? You know, anyway, we had the, the rest of the ride to get to my brother. Several months later, I suddenly get a phone call. And it was dad. I'm, hey, dad, how's it going? You know, what's going on? <clears throat> and he said, um, I was thinking about what you said the other day. Well, we hadn't talked to each other in the other day, so I wasn't sure exactly <laughs> what he was talking about. But he said, I was thinking about what you said the other day. And um, I don't know. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, you know, when you asked me, why do I get so mad when somebody disagrees with me? And I've been thinking about that. And the answer is, I don't know. All right, well, good talking with you. And he hung up. (laughs) What just happened? But it was really, really an interesting moment because there had been this period of of real self-reflection about why do I get so mad when somebody disagrees with me? And one of the most important first steps, first moves in critical thinking is being able to pay attention to and acknowledge the way that information makes us feel. Mm. When information hits us in the gut and we feel like we just had a gut punch and we have a visceral reaction to it, and sometimes that visceral reaction is anger, and sometimes it's defensiveness mm-hmm. because the the you know, the protections that we have put around our system of beliefs are eggshell hard, but they are also eggshell thin. And we intuitively know that if something that disagrees gets past those defenses, it could shatter the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And so we get really defensive and we get really outraged and we want to protect But being able to pay attention to the way that information makes us feel, that visceral reaction, that gut punch, that is a really important first step for critical thinking and critical thought. And it is absolutely the case that paying attention to the way that the information that we encounter that's mediated to us digitally, the way it makes us feel, that is a really important aspect of critical thought. How does this make you feel? Yeah. And that right there is one of the biggest reasons why, I mean, Kevin, he's off of Facebook and social media entirely. I'm not as cool as Kevin. I can't get off of it entirely because I've got some business aspects on there and a couple other pages that I'm involved with that I help moderate and things like that. But I like exploring definitely... faith, pursuing grace. <laughs> yes. Our exploring lead, faith, lead pursuing the grace. work for this podcast. <laughs> our podcast discussion board is really that. And another group that I'm a part of for chiropractors is really the only reason why I'm still on Facebook at all. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's because I took inventory exactly what you were saying, Chris, I took inventory of why 
you know, why am I having a hard time going to sleep at night? Why am I developing an, why am I developing more anxiety than I've ever had before? Yeah. What is the deal? Why is it that the weekend's coming around and I should be excited for the weekend, spend time with my kids, go outside and play, go for a bike ride, get in the pool, do all this other stuff. Mm. You know, why am I not living life? Mm-hmm. And instead I'm either so keyed up and just, I have this latent undercurrent of just being just upset and angry or, you know, and I'm on edge and I'll just, you know, fly off the handle at the drop of the hat, mm-hmm. or I'm just in a funk. I'm just mm-hmm. depressed and upset and despondent. And I don't know why, you know, why is that the case? And I realized that there was a direct correlation from the amount of time I was spending doing this, scrolling with my thumb mm. mindlessly and my mental and emotional state. Yeah. And just exactly what you're saying, that question, why do I feel the way I feel? Why is this information making me feel the way that I feel? And part of it has to do, I, I know for me with that despondency and powerlessness I feel to be able to affect change on, on a worldwide level. Mm. Another part of it was frustration at some of the, what I would call in a, and this sounds derogatory and I don't intend for it to, but it's the best word for it. But just, just feeling upset at the, at the stupidity that exists in the world. Mm. And being upset at the lack of critical thinking skills that exist and people buying into narratives and ideas. And, you know, it, one example I've give that's relatively benign is the flat earth. Mm-hmm. You know, that has become such a prominent thing. And, and to this day, if I see something about a flat earth or someone espousing that information is true, it makes me just unreasonably angry. (laughs) I get upset whenever I see that it just, it drives me bananas, Mm. especially whenever it's people that I know are intelligent, people that I know are smart and people that I know that love God. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, you know, I just, you know, want to, you know, kick him in the knee and hit him in the back of the head with a skateboard whenever, whenever they post that kind of thing. And it's completely irrational and I shouldn't feel that way, but I do. And it's like, why does it make me feel that way? And there are things I can pin down, but then there are other things like that. Why does flat earth make me so upset? I honestly don't know, but that's one thing. And then there are other things that can do it too. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can figure that out to a point. But there are some things that we just can't figure out and we have to rely on the Holy Spirit to help us mature and grow in our faith mm. and grow in our love so that we can get beyond that. But that's that's a lifelong yeah. process. Well, and that that's honest to goodness. One of the main reasons why I left social media is the, the time consumption. And I just realized that I could be doing a lot of other things with my time, uh, but also just the way that I was feeling. I would engage in conversations and and there would be times when I thought the conversation would be worth engaging in. And then two hours, three hours into it, I'm like, well, why did I just waste half my night Mm. talking about this subject that really, if this person doesn't change their mind, I personally don't think is that big of a deal, but it became that big of a deal in that moment. And then second of all, why am I so adamant about making this person changed their mind. You know, you know, and you just start thinking of these things. And I started looking at how I wanted to have the control that I wanted to be able to get people mm. to see things the way I see it. A lot of times I saw personally within my own self, 
uh, I, I would uh, I was overly sensitive without realizing it because I would feel like if someone was disagreeing with me, they were attacking me as an individual and not just mm. my position or my belief. And so after a long period of time, I just saw I, this is making me angry. This is making me upset. This is making this isn't really helping any. I'm making other people upset <laughs> uh, unintentionally, uh, even good friends. In fact, a good friend of mine. Uh, it's, it wasn't Lee. It was it was someone else who uh, who actually has been on this podcast, though. And one time this has been a while back, uh, probably about a year ago, year or two ago. But we were he had posted uh, something on a Bible topic. And I just was scratching my head thinking, why in the world would he post that? Hmm. And so I, I a lot of people were liking it. I didn't think much of it at first, but then everyone started liking it. And I thought, OK. There has to be a dissenting voice here to, to show that this is this is ludicrous, at, at least, of course, according to me. Right. Because it's not what I believe in. <laughs> and so, so I, I go on there and I spent probably a good five hours writing a response. Mm. And he had no idea because, you know, it wasn't to me. This was just uh, under the comment section. And I, and the, and it wasn't that, I mean, it was long because I don't know how to be short, but it wasn't like that, that, that long. It was just, it took me a while because I was doing all sorts of research, probably a lot of bias research now that I know how Google works, but I was doing a lot of, doing a lot of what I thought was, was research and uh, getting, getting sources and things of that nature and uh, commentators and, and just showing what I thought and perceived to be his inconsistency. And so I wrote it. And it was very, very harsh. I mean, it. I wasn't too ugly to him, but it was just very harsh. Mm. And um, he texted me because it was like two o'clock in the morning when I did this. And he texted me the next morning and was like, "Man, I'm I'm really hurt. Like, what what's going on?" Mm. And uh, so I just picked up the phone and I called him, and you know, I apologized. And and I don't know. I, I was just. It was just one of those things. That, and of course, he told me that he had read something else that led to him writing that and the way that I had interpreted it was a completely different direction. He was trying to take it to begin with. Mm -hmm. So there was some miscommunication because I see a lot of miscommunication happening as well. When you talk about social media and just media overall with communication, a lot of miscommunication tends to happen. But mm -hmm. I, I say all that just to say one thing that I'm hearing from you is not just the importance of listening and taking time and making sure that you're looking at diverse voices so that you're not just hearing the same thing, but also looking at people mm. instead of propositions. Mm. Mm. That, that, that's what I'm hearing from you is, is not that we can't discuss propositions, but that the person needs to be put out in front and then through the person, can we start talking about the proposition? But media almost reverses that script where we don't actually see the person first. We see their proposition Good. and then we work based through their proposition. Am I hearing that? Am I seeing that? Because that's that's kind of what I'm hearing with with what you're saying. And Kevin, that's so good. And I, I want to um, really commend the story that both of you have told Um Lee, I can see you now picking up a skateboard and hitting someone with it. So that's very nice imagery for me to to imagine. But and you don't you don't want to mess with Lee, man. The oh, dude, no. the, dude oh, no. the dude is jacked. Hey. He is what what belt are you now in jujitsu, dude? I'm still just a purple he, belt. He he he, uh, he, purple. he teaches like his his daughter is an American Ninja Warrior. I oh, mean this. This is a family you don't want to mess with, man. <laughs> well, well, you're. <laughs> 
You're right. You're right. And um, I, I want to go back to a word that you used that is a word that would characterize the kind of athleticism that you have to have to be an American ninja warrior. Uh, and it's the word control. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, you know, the things that we um, say that we believe and the beliefs that we uh, come to inhabit and entertain a lot of times it has to do with, um, with, with really feeling out of control. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about propositions versus people, we think about the way that, that humans are, are built. Um, one way to talk about this would be that, you know, I as a human being, I have a web of beliefs that lives inside of me. I mean, just kind of imagine this massive web inside of me. And some of the beliefs that I hold you know, they kind of exist way out on the extremities of that web. They're not really that significant. If you came up to me and you told me that, um, you know, Istanbul used to be called Constantinople and um, I didn't know that, well, I might just change one of those beliefs that's way out there on this on this web that I hold. And, and that's fine. That That didn't affect me very much. But if you come and you start talking about some things, those things that are actually existing as propositions down really close to where my heart is, mm-hmm. down really close to the very center of that web, then I may uncritically pick up a skateboard and knock you over the head with it, right? <laughs> because what you've done is you've reached in and you have twanged on one of those threads that's really close right to the center and it did not feel good. It hurt. And it causes me to suddenly question. It causes me to suddenly doubt. It makes me under. It makes me think that my world might collapse, mm-hmm. and I don't have control anymore. And the only way for me to get control of my world again is to lash out at you and to make sure you know that you're wrong yeah. and I'm right. Yeah. Because those beliefs that I hold closest to the center are very often uncritically held beliefs. They are our just-so stories about the way that the world is. And don't you go messing with those. This is why it's so important for us to pay attention to the way that information makes us feel, right? Why is it that we get so upset? Well, it's because somebody has reached in and they've kind of twanged on one of those beliefs that's so central. And guess what? Those beliefs are propositions. But it's the person who holds the beliefs. And there's a reason why, there's a story behind why they hold that particular proposition, you know? And ironically, when, at least what I have found to be true in my own life is when I felt, especially when I did formal debating, because you want to go away feeling like you knew you probably were not going to convince your opponent, but you wanted to at least go away feeling like you convinced yourself. And in part in part of doing that is getting enough people to side with you, because I'm sure we've all been in a situation where we believe something and someone disagrees with us. And then more people started to uh, maybe they were listening to the conversation and they started to to agree with the person you're disagreeing with. 
And that tends to, you know, at least for me, that that would make me want to even dig my heels in deeper and and try to even convince them that much more that, okay, wait, wait, no, you really have to see it this way. And now other people are seeing it like you. No, no, no. Now I've really, you know, I've got to bring them back somehow because Mm -hmm. there's a sense in which I feel like, am I losing my conviction through this because other people are changing their mind? And Mm -hmm. what I realized is that my conviction is not based upon my ability to convince you of whether or not you believe it's true. <laughs> and, and if, if that's where I feel like I have to, to land, if I feel like I, if I'm operating through this approach of, okay, well, I've got to, in order to feel like I have to have control, I've got to get you to see things my way. Mm. I'm actually giving all of that control to you. And I no longer have mm. any control over my beliefs because I'm allowing you basically to dictate it at that point. Mm. So if you if you don't convince me, then all right, maybe may, or if or if I don't convince you, then I'm allowing you to have that control over me instead mm. of just simply saying, "Well, hey, this is where I see it. This is where I'm at, and I, I understand your perspective. I respect it, but you know, we say see things differently, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." And instead of doing that and going away, shaking hands in a respectful way, cool headedly, Mm -hmm. usually it would be, no, 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 you've got to see it this way, you know, because I felt personally attacked. But something else real quickly I just wanted to to bring up, too, is how much do you think experience Mm -hmm. comes into play? And what I mean by experience is not just experiencing this over time and learning how to get a better gauge, but also when you are experiencing how people are behaving, because Lee and I have talked a lot about this, where we tend to make theology very one dimensional of, well, this is what the Bible says. That's it without bringing in other, what I believe to be biblical elements, because I think the fruit of the spirit is actually Jesus saying, we need to look at experience because you can look at a tree and see the fruit that it bears. That's an, that's an experience that you're having. That's not a propositional truth. And so how how much do you think experience plays a part that, you know, in large part, I left legalism not because I think the, the, theologically there's a lot of problems with it, and but I think that when I look at the fruit that it was bearing in my life, it, it was bad fruit. It wasn't mm. bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And so if I'm looking at information, or and that's in large part why I got off of Facebook because I didn't think I was bearing good fruit. Me being on there, I didn't think the way that I was interacting wasn't bearing good fruit. And so, mm. w- when you talk about information, how much ex- of of bringing in that experience of looking at the result and looking at the fruit that it's bearing should we take into consideration when knowing what and how to decipher the information we have right in front of our faces. These are really important questions. And, um, you know, I mean, a a little bit ago you asked, uh, what are some practical ways that we can surf the web, you know, or what should we know before we jump on? And, And the reality is, I, at least from my perspective, I think what we're talking about now is actually the stuff that will make us become better at kind of navigating and inhabiting this information system. This is the conversation that we really need to be having because it's not like you can just kind of um, bone up on some tricks or, you know, uh, watch a couple of videos and, and learn how to, to Google well. Google hacks. The Google, yeah. There's a <laughs> life hack for it. But, but really the reality is it's this kind of conversation. And, and, and here's why. 
Rosser's Rock and Life Hacks to Google. There you go. There you go. I, I've got a YouTube channel. Like and subscribe, friends. You know, you'll see me on TikTok. So nobody wants to see me on TikTok. Uh, but the, the reality is what we believe matters because belief always becomes actualized as word or as deed, right? The things that we believe matter because at some point they become actualized. In other words, because we're storied creatures, the stories that we tell most often become the ways that we engage the world, right? And so when you ask, what does experience matter? Or should we be paying attention to uh, this metaphorical idea of you know, the fruit that something bears? In my own way of thinking in my own life, um, I've got kind of these three criteria for uh, trying to weigh the goodness or the value of belief. And so, um, you know, let me see if I can just kind of go through it. I'm, I'm going to do it by memory here. A tree is known by the fruit it bears. And that's the first tenet. Something that you mentioned just a second ago, Kevin. A tree is known by the fruit it bears. In other words, what my beliefs or my words or my um, you know actions, what they produce, that should be a pretty indicative, um, uh, that should indicate the kind of person that I am. In other words, character, right? Yeah. And I don't mean just character in the, the sense that are you a good person, are you a bad person, are you wise or whatever, but as a storied creature, what kind of character am I? Am I a dynamic character? Am I a character who is capable of making necessary changes? Or am I a static character, right? Who just kind of stays stuck in the same old patterns forever and ever and ever, you know? So it reveals character. The second tenet is this. um, The best beliefs bear the best fruit. And we know what the best fruit is. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And by the way, the best interpretations of scripture likewise will bear the best fruit. If you have understandings of scripture that produce nothing but dissension and turmoil and exclusion and cause pain, if I'm monitoring my thinking, (laughs) I have to ask the question, how can that be a good belief? Amen. And then finally, the third tenet is um, actually straight out of, just like the first tenet, Jesus' words, but the the third tenet is is Paul's words in Romans 13.10, which says, love does no harm to neighbor. Therefore, love is keeping the law. So those three tenets help me to try to evaluate whether or not the beliefs that I have or the, you know, consequent actions and words from those beliefs, whether or not those are actually good things or not. And so when you talk about experience, um, I love the story you told because you said that your friend called you in the night and you had to talk about this thing. And I'm guessing you probably realized, at least it sounded like it from the way that you told the story, was that as you discuss these things, you realized that there was something about making that post that did not bear good fruit. And it was through the dialogue with your friend that maybe you came to that realization. And it was in that moment that you had to decide whether or not you were going to continue with that kind of behavior, right? 
Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to spend five hours researching so that I can make a, a, a brief post to try to counter my friend, you know? Um, and we've, we've all done that kind of thing. Right. But oh, yeah. you had the realization that that's not something that I want to do anymore. That didn't really bear good fruit. And so, yeah. Well, and I even had a feeling <laughs> yeah. when I was writing it because I've, I, one thing that I have tried to focus on is making sure that my decisions are based off of faith and conviction, not fear and doubt. Yeah. Because the way I was raised, you make, you make your decisions based upon fear and doubt. That was literally the way I was taught, not, yeah. not by my mother and my father, but my, my church upbringing. And that wasn't even anything that was explicitly taught, but it was certainly implicit. Those were the undercurrents, yeah. Because because mm. everything came back to, well, are you sure just to be on the safe side? And all mm. of that was based upon doubt and fear. So all of my decisions is saying, well, yes, I think this is right. I'm going to do it. It's, well, I don't know. It could be wrong, so I, I better not do it. So what I started picking up about five, six, seven years ago is that I had been operating out of fear instead of faith. Yeah. And that translated into a lot of just not just not just daily decisions, but even in my conversations with people is that when I'm when I'm writing something or when I'm researching or what there's a feeling that comes over me. Mm. And it is this fear that mm. I ha it's an alarm and and it's it's like a, a hair trigger that just went off. And I can almost, whenever I have that, even Bethany, my wife, she knows she's like, okay, don't do anything. <laughs> like, mm. this is not the time you need to act because th th you're not operating from a place of, of, of reason and faith and conviction. You're operating off a place of fear, mm. urgency, all of those types of things that very rarely end in a good decision. And so, you know, that was because even she told me, you need to wait. You know, go ahead and write it, but don't post it. Sleep on it and post. I'm like, no, no, I got to do this right mm. now. You know, this this can't wait type thing. And but just having the conversation with him, I, I saw the hurt that because he's like, man, what's going on here? Like, mm. you, you know, it was one of those things where he's like, man, we we. I mean, this is a close. This is somebody I talk to on the phone once every couple of weeks. So, I mean, we're not talking about just acquaintance friends. We're talking friends i mean i've mm. gone over to the, their house multiple times they've gone over mine and he's like why, why would you do this and mm. you know especially public and i said well why would you post something like that public and you know he ended up taking the whole thing down because he realized that he sh he, he regretted even posting it mm. but it was one of those things where he's like man i wish you'd have just called me and wow. had this conversation, I would have taken it down. He goes, because I now see exactly what you're saying. And that's not what, what, what my intent was at all. But you know, I, I, you made me look really bad because then when I posted that, everyone was like, yeah, Kevin is right. And of course that bolstered my ego because now I'm feeling good. Like I see, I needed to do this. People mm -hmm. needed Kevin Pendergrass because they needed to hear the, the truth on this matter. And I was the truth bear. And so, <laughs> you know, th there's, there's a lot of, I think, superiority that goes into information too. And I have to constantly check myself for that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, because in in looking at how dumb everyone else is, I have to also realize I'm pretty stupid too. And it, it's it, everyone has blind spots. They they just tend to be different yeah. <laughs> one from another. And so uh, I, I just say all that to say that you know, th this I think conversation is so vital because it gets to the heart of what Christianity is, and that's love. Yeah. 
And when you were talking about the definition at the very beginning, how, how are we going to show love through information? And if we only see proposition before people, because mm. I, don't, I don't think that takes proposition out. I, th- I think there is propositional truth. We all have propositional conviction, whether it's correct or not. But should that be the first thing? You know, I, I, yeah. if, and that was in the conversation with my friend. With, when I'm talking to someone on social media, I probably don't know them. I've never met them. I'm defining them by their beliefs. Yes. I'm not defining the beliefs by the person. That's right. They are pixels. They are soundbite. Uh, they're outrage. They're vitriol. There's something to react to. There's something to crush, you know. But I heard you say something, Kevin, and, and I think it's very, very interesting. It It seems like you just told us that you were able to, and, and your wife as well, were able to recognize a kind of pattern of thinking, a way that you felt when you encountered information that you're, you're calling a kind of a fearful response. And you were able to pay attention to yourself, to monitor your own thinking enough that you could recognize when that was happening. And in so doing, you were able to make changes based upon being able to recognize those feelings and those patterns within yourself, that's it. That's the systematic monitoring of thought with the end goal of improvement. And now you're supposed to say to me, go ye and do likewise. You know, that's, <laughs> that's what this is. I, I think it's so good. You know, debate is charged with gladiator energy, right? Oh, yeah. It's jujitsu. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, that's what it is. That's what debate is charged with. It's so interesting. Ego, man. Your ego is is on the line every time. Yeah. I mean, who wants to be in the middle of a debate and say, yeah, you're right. I'm wrong. <laughs> and that's, I mean, and that's what it is. So what you have in a debate like that is you have a self and you have an other. And the energy that is connecting them, the way that they are being united is fraught with that kind of competition. One of us is going to overpower the other. Let me get theoretical, theological again, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. This is good. This is really good. Because I I think this is so, I think this is so beautiful. Um, Really, we're talking about what it means uh, for love to become mature so that a self comes to love an other or sameness learns to love difference, right? And this self-other construct is something that we find right at the beginning of creation. In fact, um, I would go so far as to say the self-other construct is actually the substratum of all creation. And it's the only reason that cosmos itself is possible. Here's what I mean. So think about the beginning of Genesis, right? This is, this is, um, this is cosmos being formed. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, tohu vavohu. You can hear the, the, the kind of energy in the Hebrew uh, where it's just kind of this chaotic, and yet there's something kind of playful about it. The earth is formless and void, and darkness covers the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And then God says, let there be light. And what we see right here at the very beginning is that the Spirit of God is very, very feminine kind of energy and imagery and language, actually, um, in the original. 
this feminine, uh, very loving kind of hovering over the face of the deep, right? There's a face of another. There's a self and there's another. And that other is just this um, undifferentiated mass of tohu vavohu, of formless and void, everything all together all at once. And then God says, let there be light. And the only way for cosmos to happen, the only way for there to ever be any kind of differentiation of anything is for something to be named this and not this. When God says, let there be light, and then he separates the light from the darkness, you see what's happening. Cosmos is being formed because something is being named this and not this. And it's really fascinating to me. And I, I know, what does this have to do with anything? But Oh, it's the, excellent. Just keep okay, going. Okay, here man. we go. We, we'll stuff, I love it. I eat this stuff up. Because <laughs> we get to Genesis chapter 2, and we find out that humanity, the Adam, is given a job right off the bat. And the job is to name things. And so one of the things that humans have done from the very beginning is to name the world that we live in, to call something this and not this, right? This and not that. We began by naming things, right? What we find is that in our naming of things, a lot of times what we do in order to make sense of the world is to create um, binaries or dualisms. This and not this is in itself a dualism. It's a binary. Yeah. And we have, we have had these kinds of binaries uh, among us for so long that they feel like they're natural. They feel like they were given to us by God. But come to find out, a lot of the binaries that we assume about the world are artificial. They really reflect humans naming things. And reality actually exists in this kind of gray space in between. And I'm saying this to, to say, when it comes to the way that we have to encounter others, whether they are visceral or whether they are virtual, when it comes to the way that we have to encounter others, a self is encountering an other in love. And it's not debate. Because the self and the other that are bound together in love can maintain their difference, right? Without either one ever having to conquer the other. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I hate to bring this in because um, some people might get offended a little bit. But if you ever saw Kung Fu Panda, we're talking about the yin-yang symbol. Yeah. It's very yeah. interesting because uh, originally just the circle itself is the number one and it reflects everything all together, all at once. There's a oneness, but it's undifferentiated, right? It's just oneness. The yin-yang represents the number two, and it's a differentiation of this and not this. But there's always a little bit of this in that, and there's always a little bit of that in this, and they are bound together, different, and yet connected the self and the other bound together in love reflects that kind of harmony. And when we think that the way we're supposed to intend the world is through debate or through conquer or through the sword, where my whole role is really just to crush and devour the enemy, right? We're not engaging the other in love. 
all we're ever doing is engaging sameness. And that sameness, uh, or let me say it this way, that engagement of sameness without recognition of the other in all of their humanity, that is actually um, the energy of anti-creation, right? <laughs> That's wanting to bring us back to this indifferentiated oneness where there's really no cosmos anymore. I know that probably made zero sense, but no, um, it, it made perfect sense. I I got to thinking about two passages while you were talking. I just want to get your quick thoughts on them. The first one is first Corinthians eight, one where Paul's dealing with things pertaining to idols. And he says, we know that we all have knowledge, knowledge puffs up, but, but love edifies. And that seems to go, just hand in hand exactly with what you're saying that yes, there is a propositional truth on this issue, but that's really not the main thing. The main thing is not knowledge. The main thing Good. is the love you have for one another. And Good. then Galatians five fifteen, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. I'm going to tell you, Chris, that defined my Christianity up until about five to six years ago yeah. is it, we were by, I was, I was, and I, and I was the guilty one, right? I was constantly biting and devouring. And because of that, I left a path of destruction behind. Mm-hmm. And that, that's why I really try to lean into the fruit of the spirit and, and looking at Good. what am I bearing? And so what, what are your thoughts on those two passages real quick? First Corinthians 8, 1 and Galatians five fifteen. Does that, does that, have I correctly tied those things together as, as far as what you're talking about? I think it's beautiful what you brought in there, um, that, that knowledge puffs up. I mean, in the context of the Corinthians, you have a group who um, sees themselves as spiritually elite, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a good thing we don't see that anymore. I'm glad that humanity has kind of grown <laughs> past that. You see this group who's spiritually elite, and it's what Paul is having to, to um, address with them. Don't you understand that... Um, it's not this knowledge that you think you have that makes you anything at all, mm-hmm. but rather it's love. And it's in that very context where we find Paul talking about the dim mirror that once love becomes mature, gets removed so that we encounter another face to face. And isn't it interesting in the Galatians passage that the dominant metaphor there is consumption, oh. which is exactly the metaphor that we use to talk about the way we engage information. You will bite and you will devour each other until there is nothing left. And that's the way that we talk about the way we consume the information that we encounter. And so, yeah, I think that these are, uh, I think these are right on. I would bring in uh, Romans 14 if we're, if we're using this kind of metaphor uh, of consumption, where Paul says, the kingdom of heaven is not about eating and drinking. Mm-hmm. And later he says, um, do not, for the sake of food, your tastes, what you want to eat, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Because there's something more that you're supposed to be about, and that is welcoming one another just as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God, right? That's a different energy. Embrace is different uh, from consumption and from exclusion. So... Well, and I think what makes that so difficult for so many people, and it ties back into the spider web metaphor that that you had discussed earlier, 
what makes it so hard is we tend to look at ourselves on a subconscious level as the sum total or the amalgamation of those various webs. We don't differentiate between the propositions we hold. We don't differentiate between those and ourselves as a human being and as an individual. So mm-hmm. when those propositions are attacked, when those spider webs, when those strands that are so close to the center are plucked or are shaken, mm-hmm. well, then we view that as an attack on ourselves. And then we typically reciprocate in kind by attacking the other. And then we Ooh. end up biting and devouring one another because we don't differentiate between the idea and the concept and ourselves as an individual. We look at those propositions that we hold on to as an extension of our own identity and who we are. And when you take a deeply held conviction or a long held religious belief, like the essentiality of baptism or, or the, the form and function of communion and the observance of the Lord's supper or instrumental music or anything within the stone Campbell, you know, reformation or restoration movement, Mm. any of those things. And I speak to those things because that's where most of our audience is and has come from. And that's where Kevin came from. That's my heritage. It's his heritage. It, whenever you begin to upset those things, well, my identity is tied up in those things. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I interpret, you know, the questioning of those propositions. It, it's not coming from a place of love, even though you may intend for it to be. You're attacking me now. Mm-hmm. You're attacking the truth, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And in that, I need to stand up ready to defend. And the love goes out the window. That idea of you being a fellow image bearer and you being a fellow child of God, that's not even on the table anymore. That's not even remotely within the realm of consideration in my own mind. I have to be right. And I have to be right because my identity relies on that because my identity is so tightly interwoven to those propositions. I can't really any of them. I can't divest myself from them on a personal level and engage with it on that level. And it makes me feel threatened, which is why I respond in kind. Uh, I think that gets to the root of why so many of those conversations tend to not really go anywhere Yeah, because we have personalized those propositions to the point where we, we can't even have a conversation about without feeling like we're being attacked or feeling the need to attack someone else. Lee, that, that is so good. I just want to say one thing. Cause Lee, when you said that, man, I immediately thought about how growing up when someone disagreed with me, they weren't disagreeing with me. They were disagreeing with the Bible or they were disagreeing with God. That was how I deflected the disagreement mm. because that way it's no longer me versus you it's you versus God. You know, your issue, your issue, Chris, is not with me. Your issue is with you disagree with what God says. And so, you know, you can disagree with me all day long. I don't have a problem with that, but now you're disagreeing with God. Mm. And I, and I see a lot of that deflection happening. Well, I mean, look, I'm just going to not even point to other people. Me, I, I did that all the time where it was all about you versus versus God, whoever I was disagreeing with at that time. And that was one way to deflect the real conversation and the real engagement, because now I felt like, well, you're not attacking me. You're attacking the Bible. (laughs) You're attacking God. And when both individuals are having a conversation like that, like two ships passing each other in the night, they're completely 
missing each other. But Lee, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I just I had an epiphany when you said that. I thought, man, that is yes, like that. That's exactly what I used to do. Is I would feel feel personally attacked, but then I would project that onto. Uh, or, or, you know, I would, I would project that into, okay, no, actually that's, that's not, it's God, it's God, uh, that they're really attacking. Two ships passing in the night or, um, maybe two gods, uh, <laughs> challenging each other to an arm wrestling contest yeah. or something like <laughs> yeah. that. Lee, you said something I thought was, um, very interesting. You said we personalize these propositions until we can no longer have conversations with each other without feeling attacked personally like you are attacking me. Can I tell a story in response to that? Yeah, <laughs> hey, one we more story, one more story. We love all stories. the stories you want to, so, Chris. We go. Well, so, um, you know, my best stories come from Japan. So here's one. There was a man, uh, his name is Tomihiro Hoshino. And uh, he had gone to college to be a, a, a PE teacher. First day of class at his new school after graduating, first day on the job, he gets up onto a cafeteria table and he tries to show off to the students by backflipping <laughs> off the yeah. table. He lands on his neck. He snaps his neck. He becomes an instant quadriplegic. Oh, my goodness. And so the rest of his life, I mean, he's completely paralyzed. Uh, he, can, he can talk. Um, but he can't do anything else for himself. And I don't know how you do this, uh, but he tried to take his life several times, you know, unsuccessfully. And at some point, um, I, I don't know exactly the story, but he encountered a, a, a Christian nurse um, and she gave him hope. <clears throat> and following that, he learned how to paint with his mouth. And so Tomohiro Hoshino became um, really renowned in Japan for painting these beautiful, very natural kind of images like flowers or mm -hmm. those kind of fruit, etc., And then writing beside it some kind of um, brief but inspirational um, message in Japanese, you know. Uh, and he had a museum. I mean, and so we went to the museum and there was one of these um, poems that he had written alongside a, a, an image that he had painted that really stuck out to me. And I'll try to say what it said. It said, a tree rises up out of the mud of its birth, but it spreads its branches wide. And of course, he had, he had drawn a, a, a lovely kind of a tree coming up out of the mud. And I thought, wow, you know, for him, that probably means that even though he's confined to his bed, he's still through his imagination. He can kind of go anywhere, right? Yeah. He's, he's rooted in place, and yet he can still... Uh, engage the world and encounter the world. But but I realize that for me and for you and, and for all of us, really, we are born into a particular moment in history, a geographic, a temporal moment, a contingency. We are born into a particular family. We rise up out of that mud and there is no way, even if you say, I'm escaping it, I'm ignoring it, it is still there as a shadow. You can't get away from it. You're rooted in it somehow. We all of us rise up out of those particular places that shape our story, and they really form those propositions within us, don't they? Yeah. But what we can do, the one thing we can do, is to spread our branches wide, right? 
we're coming up out of the mud, but like a tree, we can spread our branches wide and we can try our best to gather light from as much of the forest as possible to somehow reach and to connect with all of these other trees that are growing up out of their own mud. And it's in that process of recognizing my own contingency and my own limitations and humbly acknowledging those contingencies, I nevertheless can reach for the other and somehow learn from them, uh, what's your life like? What's your story like, right? And it's in doing that that I can begin to grow, you know? And so um, we do, we feel threatened whenever the propositions that we have personalized, I, I love that language so much that you used, we feel threatened when that happens. Those propositions are just a reflection of this mud that we were born in, right? Very often yeah. that's the case. We inherited these things. We yes. probably hold them uncritically. Anyway, I, I think that that's uh, part of what's going on. Here. Yeah, no, I, I think it absolutely is. It absolutely is because every belief we have is an inherited belief. Mm -hmm. And we are influenced far and wide. We're influenced by our parents. They're a primary influencer for better or worse. Sometimes yeah. we have grandparents, brothers, sisters, we have spiritual brothers and sisters. We have um, cousins, we have friends and acquaintances. We have society. We have, you know, the political discourse, celebrity, social media, Google, we have yeah. news sources. We have all of these things that influence us. And even we have podcasts, we there have podcasts and influences, <laughs> you know, but we all have different things that influence us to one degree or another. And whenever we begin to see the, the cracks form in the facade of the belief system that we hold on to or once held, or maybe we see that, our convictions and the information that our convictions are based upon is not as airtight as we once believed. Mm. Well, then we be, we begin to seek answers. And sometimes those answers can bolster our faith and can reaffirm some of what we have believed. Sometimes they can shatter it. And mm. whenever that happens, we are trading one set of influences for another. Mm. And it's, it's, it's so interesting to see that be the case. And it's so interesting. One of the common themes that I see coming up over and over and over again in this conversation is humility. Yeah. And it is being able to engage with others, to be able to engage with information, to be able to engage in discourse and conversation in a humble way and with a humble mind, Yeah. knowing that you know, there may be something I don't know here. There, there may be something that I'm missing. There may be a piece of this puzzle that, that I'm not understanding how it fits with these other pieces. And whenever you're entrenched within legalism, you don't see that because a legalistic worldview relies on certainty. You have to be certain yeah. about things. And whenever that certainty is appended and it begins to threaten everything, well, we can either double down or we can recognize, I really don't know as much as I thought that I do. There is way more out there that I don't know than I can ever know. Yeah. So let's explore that. Well, and the more, the more humble anybody becomes, I believe that embraces the grace and mercy of God that much more, because Ooh. the more certain I am of my certainty, the less I really feel like I need to lean on God's grace and mercy. Ooh. At least that's how I had felt because you know, you kind of already know that you, and I put, I'm putting no in air quotes here, but you, you think that you know everything. And in, in my case, for many years, I was certain I was certain, 
which certain is just a feeling uh, I learned. So that really doesn't mean a whole lot. But at the time I was uh, certain that I had it all figured out. And so there wasn't much of a need to talk about God's grace and mercy. Not that I didn't think that it was necessary. I certainly did, at least theoretically speaking, but practically speaking, it wasn't really in my conversations. It wasn't in my mind. It wasn't in my Mm. thoughts. It wasn't in my trust. And the more that I realize I don't know, that has not led me away from faith because that was when I started going down this road of, of deconstructing, reconstructing as that's, I know that's kind of the cookie cutter language these days. But when I did go down that road, people were saying, well, you know, Kevin, a lot of people have gone down this road, especially studying, getting into higher criticism with the Bible and starting to understand the Bible differently. And they said, there's been people who become atheists because of that. And, and, and I've, and I heard those types of things. And once again, that was fearful thinking. And I said, well, I'm just, in my own mind, I'm just trying to be honest. I want to make sure that I'm doing what I think is fair. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't ever want to avoid something because I don't think that it's, it's just because it may uh, hinder me from believing the way you think. If it's something that I think is, is right, then that's what I'm going to follow. At the end of the day, that's all we can really ask any of, for for any of us is just to do what we think is, is right based upon the information and knowledge that we have at that time. But as I've continued to go down this path, I haven't, gone into a place of not having any faith, I, I would argue that my faith is stronger than it's ever been because now I actually have a completely different understanding of what faith is. It's not a, mm. it's, it's not a belief that I've got everything right. It's a trust in realizing that even though I fall short in so many ways, thank God for his incredible grace and mercy. Mm. And just the, and, and that has, that's helped me, when I do have doubt, because I certainly have doubt, <laughs> you know, there's there's some days I doubt more than others, but that doesn't scare me anymore. It gives me more appreciation to say, this is why I trust in Jesus, because mm. I don't, you know, God, I Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> One of the things that I really appreciate about the story you just told, Chris, is that idea of those branches branching out mm-hmm. and contacting the other and you know, and Kevin, in, in speaking in terms of his journey and mm. the evolution of his faith, you know, mine was largely influenced by that same concept you talked about and seeing other people, you know, having come from a very legalistic branch within the churches of Christ that believe that we were the only ones going to heaven because we were the only ones that were fully practicing the truth. Mm. You know, I would see these other people from different denominations and from different religious groups that were meeting and exemplifying those fruits of the spirit mm. and the fruit mm. they were bearing in their life. It, it made mine look paltry by comparison mm. and, you know, seeing that manifest itself, it was hard for me to wrap my head around this concept that these people are lost. They're bound for a devil's hell for all eternity Mm -hmm. because they believe a different set of propositions than I do when they're manifesting that fruit of the spirit. Yeah. They're manifesting that love, that joy, that peace, that long suffering, that, that meekness, that kindness, that gentleness, all, all those things. They are putting that to work in their lives. You see it in their lives Mm. and you know, seeing that and experiencing that and being able to recognize, you know, maybe, maybe there's something to that. Maybe these are people that I need to converse with and get to know better. And as I get to know these people better, you know, in, in reflection, it reveals 
some of the, what's the word I'm looking for? Some of the lack that I have in my own life. Mm. And that's not the word I wanted, but it's the best one I can think of right now. Um, But it's, it's so interesting how that works. And whenever we can be humble enough to let go of our own certainty and realize I don't have all the answers. I don't have it all figured out. And it's not even about having all the answers and having it all figured out in the first place. It's about loving well. And whenever you shift your lens from that and you begin to practice discernment as it relates to how you interact with others and not just that, but you turn that scrutiny on yourself and your own worldview and you see the, the, um, where you fall short. Yeah. It really does change everything. Mm Mm-hmm. If you were to, um, if you were to ask, you know, kind of like you did earlier, what is, what is something that, um, if we were to sit down in front of our computer that, that might be able to help us, you know, uh, become those who discern, right. Uh, discern well in this information saturated media rich system that we inhabit, I would say this in, in, um, resonance with what both of you are saying right now, that love and learning share a heart. Love and learning each requires encounter with something which is not itself in order for it to exist, in order for it to grow. Love has to have its object. It has to have the other for love to be love. And learning in the same way requires that we encounter something that is beyond self, if we're only learning um, a little bit, kind of a plus one on things that we already know, that may be learning, <laughs> but that's not really learning, is it? Learning requires this encounter with difference. And so when we can take that humble learner's posture and bow our heads when we get hit in the gut with information that makes us have that visceral reaction, and we can say, I don't understand, but... I'm willing to try. Mm-hmm. That's the good confession, right? We've just made the good confession. I don't understand, but I'm willing to try. And I'm willing to enter into dialogue with this other. Because debate has that kind of energy that actually pushes us apart. But dialogue has that energy that pulls us together. Yeah. Dialogue is what's important for fostering love, right? And for fostering understanding. And I know you might think, um, or anyone listening might think, what does this have to do with media literacy? I thought we were going to talk about Google. <laughs> and I always say, the first steps, the first steps in this is it really has to do with understanding what human beings are actually and how human beings engage the world. And if we can begin to understand that, then we can figure out how to navigate this very new system that we find ourselves um, captivated by. And I mean captivated in in multiple senses. We are captivated by um, the devices that that we have around us all the time. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, this has been an amazing conversation and it does not feel like two hours have gone by. Oh my gosh. Oh, <laughs> hey, I told you, man. Okay, I, told you. Yeah. I didn't believe you at first, but oh, yeah, there we are. Okay, it is. It, it goes. But, it goes by quick. I yes, I was like, man, we could we could talk. I knew. I was telling. I was telling Lee. I said, look, Chris is a great conversationalist. I said we are going to have a fantastic time with him because 
Uh, it's a, not only a great topic, but a great person to discuss it with. Yeah, brother, we definitely need to have you back on. This has been an amazing conversation, but I am afraid that I've got to be the weak link and tap out. To That's okay. Draw this to a close. Um, yeah. Our uh, since um, you know Kevin had mentioned our daughter's a uh, um, she trains in American Ninja Warrior and she competed in Las Vegas. And I'm going to take every opportunity oh. I have to talk about that. She competed in the worlds and she's ranked Ooh. number thirteen in the world now. She's eight Are years you old. She's a beast. Are you anyway, kidding? no, dead serious. She did oh. amazing. But um, hey, you're gonna have to send Chris the uh, the video of it. I have to send you a video of her run. It was phenomenal. Oh, please do. My kids, I, I've got I've got four teenagers at home. They love American Ninja Warrior. So please, 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 I want to see that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'll send it to you whenever we get done with this. I'll send you a link in the email. But anyway. She is now training um, her coach and Jim. They had to close up here in Ardmore and had to move to Dallas. There were some things that happened. So she's training in Dallas on Mondays and Thursdays. She goes down with another family, you know, and I have to go pick her up very soon. So, oh, no. okay. um, yeah, so I've got to, I've got to meet up with them. So I hate to cut this off rather because I feel like we no. were just really starting to get into the meat and potatoes of it. But as we, as we do draw this to a close, I, I think we've, we've covered this well because at its core, media literacy and knowing what you're consuming and knowing where it comes from and knowing that it's from a good source, all that's well and good. Mm. But what it boils down to is, is what kind of soil is that information going to plant itself in, especially as we relate to one another in terms of how we share information and how we receive it from the other. Mm. We need to have love. We need to have humility. And that seems to be the foundational premise behind how we ought to engage with one another and with the information that's in the world. With that being said, is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap this up? We always like to give our guests the, uh, the last word as it relates to the content of our conversations that we have. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you both for inviting me. This has been really fun. This has been a really good conversation and I appreciate you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I'll, um, I'll close with a question. It may be counterintuitive, but is it possible that our consumption of information and our use of these devices, is it possible that our engagement in the virtual might actually foster within us virtue? Is it possible for us to become better people, better lovers of the other, of the neighbor as the self, through our use? of these devices and this media that we consume? Is it, I don't know, maybe it's counterintuitive, but I'll tell you, I think that it's possible. It's going to take discernment though. And yes. I, I really do believe that um, this kind of discernment is actually going to become a necessary aspect of Christian spiritual formation as we continue as humanity uh, into this brave new world. So. Well, Brother, that's incredibly well said, and I'm in agreement with you. I think that's a great note to end on, and this has been a blast. Yeah, I have thank you so much for coming. This. Yes, You've thank, thank you. Phenomenal guys. job. We really, and I know I can speak for Kevin on this, Chris, we definitely want to have you back on. We need to have you back on. This has been a wonderful conversation, so thank you again for the work that you've done. Thank you for the work you do at Oklahoma Christian. 
And just thank you for being who you are, man. You have been so easy to talk to and to converse with, Mm -hmm. and you have brought up points and swerves that I never considered. And you really gave me a lot to think about too. So thank you so much. I've been sitting here taking notes the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, friends, thank you. I really do appreciate it. This has been good. Thank you, sir. This has been good. Yes. Well, and we thank our listeners as well. Without you, we wouldn't have a podcast because we're not just here to hear ourselves talk. Kevin and I can do that on the phone together anytime without the trouble or expense of producing a podcast. So thank you all for listening. Um, We appreciate all of you. We love all of you. And as always, we ask that you share this podcast with your friends, share it with your family. We have some really good stuff, some really cool things that we're wanting to do in the, in the months to come and especially next year. We really want to grow this and we have some plans to make that happen. We're going to need your help to make it happen. So please share this far and wide, share it on social media, share it, you know, with your great aunt Ethel that lives in the backwoods of Tennessee. If she doesn't have a computer, make a tape recording of it and take it to her so she can play it on the little thing that she got from Radio Shack in the eighties. You know, just share it with whoever you think. Hey, hey, you're talking about my wife's family and it's so true too. (laughs) (laughs) But we, we appreciate all of you. Give us that five-star review on iTunes um, give us a review on any platform that allows you to review our podcast, but only if it's a positive review, don't leave us a negative one. Um, (laughs) if you have any questions, drop us a line. We love hearing from you guys. We love you all. We appreciate you all. And we hope to chat with you all again. Thank you all very much.